Welcome to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoot Velasco. We just need one big fundraiser. Our clients are our donors. Bigger is better. Who cares what the mission statement is? I work in nonprofits. Bullshit! This week, I was asked to provide the keynote speech at the Utah Poverty Conference, provided by the Community Action Partnership of Utah. It was an honor. My good friend, Nisa Newton, their CEO, asked me to make people feel proud of working in the social sector with a personal story about my journey. And oh, by the way, can you throw in a breakdance? For those of you who don't know, I started my career as a professional breakdancer. I know one look at me and you say, breakdancer. So the following is the speech. Hello, Utah. This is the first time I've ever been in Utah. I, I drove through here once on the 70, and I saw beautiful scenery and gas stations. And I also landed in the airport once to take off from the airport. So I've never actually spent time anywhere in Utah until today. So thanks for having me and letting me see Salt Lake City. It's a beautiful city. You know, I got to say, I was a little bit, you know, I, I understood all the stereotypes, and I was expecting when I got here the stereotypes of Utah. You know, the two things everyone knows about Utah. National parks, and let's face it, ballroom dancing, <laughs> right? Because I'm a huge, huge fan of So You Think You Can Dance and uh, a huge fan of uh, Dancing with the Stars. And everybody knows that all the best ballroom dancers come from Utah. I don't know if it's something in the water or what, but I just picture that at Brigham Young University, people are in uh, spangly leotards going to class you know, with a samba, right? We often overlook the things that are most important, and that is mentorship. Dr. Bonnie Bernard did a study about a decade ago that she, she spent 20 years on. She followed 200 foster kids who were from the absolute worst environments in America, kids who were victims of abuse and neglect, who were shuttled from home to home, and she followed them for 20 years. And about a third of these kids were successful, regardless of all the odds being against them. And she looked into all the factors. And there was only one factor that tied them in. The third that were successful had one factor that was the same between all of them. And that factor was that each of them could point to a mentor who helped them at a very special time in their life when they needed help. For some, it was a teacher. For others, it was an after-school person. For others, it was a counselor or a caseworker. For others, it was a, a preacher or someone in the faith-based community. For some, it was a parent or a relative. It didn't matter, but all of them could point to someone who changed their life for the better. There was a, a more recent study done by uh, Dr. Angela Lee Duckworth. Angela Lee Duckworth is a very famous TED speaker. She, she, she gave a TED talk about resilience. And in her research, she studied high school students from across the spectrum, all ages, uh, sorry, all, all races, ethnicities, all economic, socioeconomic groups, kids who had great advantage to kids who had no advantages, kids who had great grade point averages to kids who had none. Uh, very low grade point averages, kids who were um, very high IQ to kids who were very low IQ. And the kids who succeeded were not all from one of those groups. They were from across all of those groups. There was only one factor that made those kids succeed, and that, in her research, was grit and determination, meaning that each of the kids that succeeded were kids who, when they failed, learned from that failure, got up and tried again and again and again until they succeeded. Now, Learning from failure is not hereditary. That's something you learn. It's a learned trait. It's something that we get from a mentor. Someone has to be there when you're young and you fail and tell you it's okay 
and coach you and cheer you to get up and try again. And once you've done that a few times, because of someone helping you, you figure out you can do it on your own. That's mentorship. And we all have it. We've all gone through it, and we all give it. That's what is amazing about our sector, is that we are mentors to the world. My first mentors were nurses. I was burned at 10 days old. I was an infant burned in a fire that started at my crib. And uh, it was a vaporizer caught fire. And it caught the crib on fire right next to it, and a sheet over the crib and the mattress and me. I was 10 days old, this big. My father ran me under the sink and took me to the hospital. And I lived there for five years. I was in and out of the hospital two to three times a year until I was 17. Now, hospitals in the 1960s were not like they are today for kids. Today, you have these wonderful children's hospitals. Back then, you had 20 kids living in one room that was called the pediatric ward. And we had bars on the sides of our cribs that pulled up and locked. So you were in like 20 little prisons in one room <laughs> as a kid. And parents were not allowed to stay overnight. They had to leave at 10 o'clock. So all night long, every night, there were 20 kids crying for their mother. Every night. I didn't sleep at nights. I still don't sleep well at nights. I sleep much better during the day. But what we would do is wait until 9 o'clock when parents were allowed in. And when we had the security of our parents there, then we would sleep. You just couldn't sleep at night. Now, I had bandages all over my body. There were weeks at a time when I could not move. Those bandages were compression bandages that they put on burn victims. So it was like someone pushing on your wounds all the time. Those bandages had to be changed every day, and if you know what it's like to pull a bandage off of a raw wound, picture that all over your body every day. So doctors and nurses, they get used to this, and they don't always have the best bedside manner. Sometimes doctors will tell you what you want to hear instead of telling you the truth, and you learn they're not to be trusted. But there were nurses in our ward that made all the difference. There were nurses that would coach you through as they pulled the bandages off. They would coach you through the pain. They would be strong for you until you could be strong for yourself. And those were my first mentors. After I got out of the hospital, I had braces on my leg all the way up to my hip. You see, in the fire, I lost all the muscles and skin in my right leg below the knee. To this day, I have no muscles below my knee in my right leg. They tried some muscle operations. They did not work. And so I had braces on my legs growing up. I had bald spots in my head. I had a lot of scar tissue. And my mother had a psychotic break when I got burned and she became paranoid delusional. My father was an alcoholic and his alcoholism got worse and he became violent. And after one episode when he put my mother through a wall, he left and never came back. So growing up, we moved a lot because my mother would move where her delusions told her to move. So 13 times before I graduated high school, I moved. Sometimes we lived out of my mother's car, Vista Cruiser station wagon. And through all these movements, we were always in inner city areas, and often I was in a neighborhood where I was the only white kid. And I got beat up a lot. I got beat up so much I learned a very valuable lesson, and that was to stay home. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time at home practicing things I'd see on TV. Those were my next mentors, was people on television. And my favorite show at the time was The Six Million Dollar Man with Steve Austin. We have the technology. We can rebuild him. We can make him better than he was, faster, stronger, better. Now, some of you might be too young to remember Six Million Dollar Man, but I thought I had at least six million in me with the hospital bills. And I was half bionic. You know, Six Million Dollar Man was half robot after an accident that he was in. And he was a CIA agent who worked half robot, did superhero things. And I felt for sure that was me. So that got me through some of the bullying. And then one day, my mother's friend took us 
over to her house, and she had a son my age, went to a different school, different part of town, and he had to take me with him to his after-school program, which was a boxing program. And this was a program run by some old Italian guys who were Golden Glove champions. I'm pretty sure now that they were henchmen for the mob. But they ran this after-school program free of charge for kids. It was, who knows who funded it? Hmm, I don't know. But it was free of charge for kids. And I started going to this boxing program, and they taught me how to take a punch, and they taught me how to punch back. And for the first time, I wasn't scared. And the next September, when I went back to school on day one, Richard, the biggest bully in school, came up to me and jammed me up against the locker and said, your mama lives in a mobile station. And I kneed him in the groin, hit him once, hit him twice. He went down. He cried on the ground for 15 minutes, and I never had to fight again at school after that. So those old Italian guys were pretty good mentors. And I was doing better, but I was still a loner. I still didn't have friends. And at the time, my mother had me convinced that I was going to become a priest. And I was going to go live on an island and help lepers. I was. And then uh, a, she sent me to a school that had a seminary attached to it so I could be close to the priesthood. And unfortunately, one of my friends that I met at school took me home with him one day. And his sister was my age. And I saw her. This is 1976. I saw her bending over the stove in pink hot pants. And I was right behind her. And I had an epiphany that I was not going to be a priest. <laughs> <laughs> Changed everything. Now, this girl would only hang out with two kinds of people, Danny's and Burner's. A Danny is a disco king like Danny Zucco, Saturday Night Fever. And a Burner is what we used to call guys who would form crews and they'd dance against each other and try to burn each other. And they do it at the break of the music, so now they call it break dancing. And so she would only hang out with these dancer guys. So I started watching them. And they were my mentors, even though none of them ever met me or knew it at the time. I would watch them, and I would go home and practice everything I saw them do in front of a mirror. And I did that all year long. And then the last dance of the year, I got up the nerve for the first time to dance in front of people. I did a, a brand new dance at the time called The Robot. And The Robot was inspired by a television show called Shields and Yarnell. They were two mimes that were married to each other, and they had this TV show. And they did The Robot, and then everybody in the country started doing The Robot. And I did it for the first time in front of people. You know I love The Robot because I am half bionic. And so I did that for the first time in front of people, and you know what? I was good. I know that because I got a girlfriend, <laughs> and I got friends, and my friends, who were black, called me the N-word. And when you're a white kid in a neighborhood like that, and they call you the N-word, that means you're in. You're cool. <laughs> so I knew I was, I was doing good. And all of a sudden, I had friends to hang out with. Now, some of my friends were involved in a local gang, and one of my friend's brother was the leader of this gang. His name was Mike, and Mike was my next mentor. Now, Mike did some amazing things. He was really entrepreneurial, and he was a born leader. And he ran uh, a company that, that uh, cleaned offices in our neighborhood. I think he used extortion to get the contracts. But we would go in and clean offices, and I had Wednesday night. Every Wednesday night, I cleaned offices. And then he also ran the local babysitting service. Yes, gang members babysat your kids in my neighborhood. <laughs> and that was normal. And I had, I had a babysitting on, sorry, the, the office cleaning was Tuesday and Thursday, and I had babysitting on Wednesday night. I also had a paper route in the mornings that Mike helped me with, and I bought a lawnmower and mowed lawns on weekends. And I was making pretty good bank. I was making $60 a week in 1977. That was a lot of money. My mother was making $100 at a full-time job at the time. So I was pretty good. And Mike also ran some other businesses. He, he ran a drug business and a prostitution business. Now, those businesses I was not yet involved with. But it wasn't long before I started smoking and hanging around those things. There was a priest at my church named Father Miles. And Father Miles had some kind of sixth sense. I don't know how he knew, but he knew I was getting into trouble. And he asked me one day after church 
if I would come and visit him on Mondays? I said, every Monday? He said, yeah, every Monday. I said, okay. So I showed up on Monday. I said, what do you need, Father? He said, well, look, I love Scrabble, and nobody will play with me, and I'm getting rusty. I want to teach you Scrabble. I want you to play with me every Monday. I said, okay, Father. So he taught me Scrabble, and I play with him every Monday. Now, Father Miles never preached to me. He never told me what to do. All he would do is every Monday when I came in, he would say, so what's going on? And I'd tell him, and he'd say, so do you think that's a good choice for you? Do you think those people are going to make you more successful in life? He would just ask these questions and then let me figure it out. Within six months, I stopped hanging around with the gang. I didn't know it was Father Miles at the time. I didn't know it until much later when I thought about it. But that's a good mentor. Now, I was doing better. I had a job. I wasn't hanging out with the gang, but I was still flunking out of school. And I found that out one day when I put firecrackers off on the bus and I got suspended for 10 days. And the vice principal said, if I miss one more day of school when I come back, or if I get one more failing grade, that I will have to repeat 10th grade. So I realized that I had a book report due that I hadn't even cracked yet. So I went to the library, and the librarian there said, you, you don't like school, do you? And I said, no, I really don't. <laughs> it's too many bad memories. She said, well, you know what? You, you're a slow reader because you have ADHD. And I didn't know what that was at the time. And I would start a paragraph, and I'd have to read it over and over again because I get distracted. She said, you got to realize that there are other ways to learn. What you need is something you really care about. And she goes, what are you into? And I said, well, I like breakdancing. She said, well, why don't you research the history of breakdancing? And that's what I did. And I found out this really cool thing, this rabbit hole that I fell into called the Harlem Renaissance period. And I got into art and the politics of the time and civil rights and all these things were fascinating to me. And I realized I loved history, especially American history. And I got into all of these really cool things. And with her help, I went from a D minus student to uh, an honor roll student all through junior and senior year of high school. And she even got me a scholarship into college. So I go to college in Virginia and at Old Dominion University. And I show up there and I have enough money for books and tuition, but I still have to live. So I got a job at Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC. And working at Kentucky Fried Chicken, every time I would set up a class, they would schedule me to work the same time and I'd have to drop the class. So I wasn't doing very well at school because it was getting in the way of my work that I was doing to put myself through school. So I go into uh, school one day and there's this ad on the school bulletin board that said, dancers, dancers, dancers needed. No experience necessary. We'll train $25 an hour. Hour, hour, hour. You know, I make it three fifty an hour Kentucky Fried Chicken and I can make $25 an hour dancing. So I went to audition. And I go into this room, it's this lady's living room in a loft style apartment, all wood floor with, with mirrors all on one wall. I'd never been in a dance studio in my life. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I started doing break dancing, which they hadn't seen in Virginia. You know, there were three things they didn't tell me about this dance company. It was a hustle swing disco dance company circa 1980. And $25 an hour meant $25 a show, which was an hour long and they did one show a month. And you had to understudy for six months before you could get paid. But I didn't know all that. I auditioned anyway. I'm flip-flopping around the floor, and they're looking at me like the RCA Victor dog. You know, <laughs> Don't call us. We'll call you, honey. And they went in the other room to have tea. And I said, well, look, can I just stay here till your next person comes? I've never been in a studio like this. They said, sure, knock yourself out. So I put a Kraftwerk album on that they had there, and I started doing the robot, which I neglected to do before. And they came in from the other room, and they said, that's it. We'll put you in as an understudy for the mime. So I went back to this boarding house I'm living in, and I said, guys, I'm an understudy for a mime. What the hell's a mime? No idea. They told me, and I started working for my next mentor, this guy named Danny Taylor. And Danny was a mime with the company, and he taught me how to put makeup on. 
And he said, if you want to be a great mime, you have to watch Charlie Chaplin films. And there was this new thing out that my, my uh, roommate had called a VCR. And you could go to the store and rent a, a video for 99 cents for three days. And I rented every Chaplin movie and watched them over and over and over again. That was my next mentor. And then Danny said, you know what, if you want to see if you're good, go down to the street corner, put your hat out, get some business cards made, and if people get your business card or they give you money in your hat, you know you're good. So that's what I did. And there was a new development in town that I, I started working at outside. It was a new mall, outdoor mall. And uh, I started working there, and before the first day was up, I made 300 bucks in four hours. And I started doing that and getting gigs all over town. And before the year was up, I was making more money than if I graduated my major. So I dropped out of school and became a professional mime and dancer. Now, once I did that, I got a new mentor. It was a girlfriend. And she was a, a pretty prominent dancer in town. And she got me interested in Second City Theater. And from there, I moved to Los Angeles with her. And I got into working as a Screen Actors Guild member. And I worked with Michael Jackson and Prince and videos. And it was pretty awesome, but I, I quickly realized that the, the film side was not as interesting as my day job. My day job was mentoring kids in theater, in prisons, in juvenile halls, in hospitals. I worked on the riot recovery program after the LA riots. And all of that stuff was much more interesting than anything I was doing in film. And so I, I focused on that. And I've made a career now mentoring people, like all of you that are here in this room. My whole point of the speech is to tell you, when you hear all the, the BS, of this industry, when you get bogged down with the government regulations and not having enough resources and funding, just remember it's all BS. I do a podcast now called 501c3BS, and it's about all the BS in our industry that, that we hear and we get bogged down by, and it's all BS. What really is important is what you do every day. I saw people doing it in the hallway before I came in here to speak. You mentor each other. You mentor your clients. You mentor your bosses sometimes, your boards. That's way more important than any of the BS that we get bogged down by. So I don't want you to feel that BS. I want you to feel what you really do. There's a really great uh, storyteller friend of mine named Milbury Birch that tells this story about a good man named John. God comes to John and tells John, you're such a good man that I'm going to show you heaven and hell. And he takes John to hell first. And in hell, there's this huge banquet table filled with people sitting at it, and it's filled with the most amazing food you've ever seen. It was like Thanksgiving on steroids. And these people are looking at this food, and they're stabbing it with their knives and forks, but they can't bring it to their mouth because they're chained to their chair, and they're tied to their chair, and they can't get it to their mouth. And they're spending all eternity starving trying to eat this food. And then he takes John up to heaven. And in heaven is the exact same scene. It's the same banquet table. It's filled with people, and they're also tied to their chairs, and they can't get it to their mouth. But in heaven, the difference is that the people have figured out that they can feed each other and they're eating as much as they want. The only difference between heaven and hell is our attitudes and our ability to think unselfishly. And that's what we do as a sector. We feed each other. We feed the world. There are three diseases that have been wiped off the face of the earth because of people like us in community benefit organizations. There are many other diseases like AIDS and TB that have used to be a death sentence but are now something that can be treated because of people like us. There are uh, rights that people have, civil rights, human rights, women's rights, gay rights, you name it. There are many, many rights that people have now because of people like us being the global consciousness. There are communities that were devastated by white flight in the 60s and 70s when people left downtown areas for the suburbs and they became uh, dens of, of crime and gangs and uh, uh, drugs. 
And all of that was changed by people like us that come in and bring arts and history and homeless uh, programs to those inner city neighborhoods and they became vibrant again. We are changing the world and it, all of you are doing it. Don't get mired down with the BS that you have to do to do your daily job. Think about the big picture. You are mentoring thousands and that is what's important. You're feeding each other. Thank you. I ended the speech with a robotic dance, which I can't do for you on a podcast. You have to see that one in person. I want to thank you for taking the time with us on 501c3bs. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choral group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.